Tonight's reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on, a, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, primarily, my role <clears throat> is uh, to work with communities and help our church, lead our church in mission and cultural engagement and First Wednesdays, those sorts of things. But today, I get the privilege of teaching and leading us through Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, one of the, the, the interns are walking down the aisle will give you that Bible. Just go ahead and raise your hand and they'll give it to you if you need a Bible. So as I start today, I want to explain the obscure thing that I'm holding in my hand. Does any, can anyone guess what this is, this jar, what's in this jar? Oil? Soil. You are right. Dirt. I've got a jar full of dirt that I've been walking around with all day. And what's interesting is to, to see people's reaction to it. One of our interns, his name, his name is Alex, he saw this sitting on a table, and he looked at it, and he's a guy who likes fine things, and he grabbed it, and I think he was expecting to smell some, some locally roasted coffee, some artisan coffee, or maybe some chocolate or something. He opened it up, and he smelled it, and he looked at me like, what kind of fool are you to fill a jar full of dirt and just be carrying it around everywhere? What's the value of this? How much would you pay for this? What would you give? What kind of value to, do you describe to the dirt that's in this jar? Probably not much. If I were to auction it off here in this room right now, I probably wouldn't get more than 50 cents or a dollar, and it's because you'd be after the jar and not the dirt inside. But here's the reality. The dirt that is in this glass jar is something of tremendous value to me. Because it's soil that I picked up and took out of my garden and brought it here for you today. And if you know me, you know that one of the things I love to do most in the world is I love to work in the garden. We have six raised bed gardens in, our, in the front yard of our house. And as a family, our goal is to have more square footage of garden than of physical house. So... We've got a thousand square foot house and we're, we're shooting for a thousand square feet of tomatoes and cucumbers and all of the awesome things God gives us through the garden. Now, the reason why I decided to grow a garden and, and especially put it in the front yard is there are actually many reasons. One of them is um, this is the richest time that I have with my daughter. My daughter and I, we really get to spend some great time together when we're in the garden working the soil and working with this dirt right here. This is also my way to be present and bless the community. So all the, all the neighbors come by and talk to me as I'm working in the front yard and I give them free food and we really connect. This is also a place where I rest. 
Our, our work can be fairly emotionally taxing as we hear weighty things that are going on in people's lives and mentally taxing as we study a lot of books and, uh, and commentaries about the Bible. And it's just a relaxing time to go out in the garden and work with my hands. And furthermore, this is a way that I, tr- it's an attempt to be a better steward of the environment and to care for this little plot of God's world that he's given me to steward. So what is in this jar may not seem valuable to most, but it is incredibly valuable to me. Health, friendships, connection with my daughter, rest. As a matter of fact, I am standing before you today with carbohydrates and vitamins and nutrients that are enabling me to speak that have come from this very dirt right here. This dirt is of tremendous value to me and is often overlooked by others. And today we're looking at two parables, parables that are trying to drive home a point, and I think that the the point of the parables is this, that the kingdom of God is of tremendous value, but often overlooked like the soil that's in this jar. Let's pray before we jump into the text. God, we, we thank you. We thank you for the tremendous value of your kingdom and ask that you would help us to see, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear these parables this evening and be people who are grateful and who live into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the kingdom of heaven. Both parables start out with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, is there a difference? No, actually these words can be used synonymously. And as Jesus is telling the parables, it's something he brings up over and over again. They talk about the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, some zealous, uh, uh, reverent Israelites in Jesus' day, they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain, So they figured the easiest way was to not say the Lord's name at all. They never said the name of Yahweh. So instead of saying the kingdom of God, they just said the kingdom of heaven to avoid saying his name. But the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, these terms are synonymous. Now what is the kingdom of God? Oftentimes that feels like an archaic term that feels like it belongs in the dark ages. And it feels like it's connected to crusades and, you know, uh, it just it feels like an archaic term that we don't know what to do with in our day. But that term, that term and the, the concept that's behind it, it's, is the rule and the reign of God. God's supremacy over all things. His lordship over all things. The reality that every aspect of this world belongs to him, was created by him, is sustained by him. He is the king over everything, over every neighborhood, over, over every college at ASU, over every textbook, over every star, over every microbe that is in this soil right here. He is the Lord. But because of sin and of, because of human rebellion, what's happened is we live in a world now where we are moving our gaze from the true king and God of the world and putting it on other things, looking for other kingdoms. 
taking good things of this world, success, comfort, security, and making whole kingdoms out of them and essentially rejecting God. And when we, when, when we turn to other kings other than the true king, the world begins to unravel. You know what the unraveling is like. If you have shirts with buttons, this happens to me all the time. When you look down and you see that dreaded little string that's, that's poking out of one of the buttons and you say, oh no, it's over. Because you know within a matter of weeks that button's going to be gone. It's going to unravel. And that's what happens when we treat other things as supreme and ultimate and not acknowledge God as king. The world begins to unravel and fall apart. And that's the world we live in. And God could have left us to ourselves in this unraveling, broken world, but he initiated a redemptive plan to reestablish his kingdom and make all things right and overthrow all that's broken and heal all that's hurt. And he started it out with a little kingdom, a little nation by the name of Israel. Now the intent for this nation was to be a display nation that God would bring his presence into and would give a law that was more unique and, and holy than all the other laws and excellent a people who would be a priesthood to the other nations, a light to the nations. Not just favor for the sake of favor, but favor and blessing for the sake of blessing the world. But, that, but Israel disobeyed. They worshiped idols. They moved away from God. They didn't, they didn't respond to him as king. And eventually, they, God removed his presence and his favor. And they were taken into captivity, into a Babylonian the captivity in Babylon, a distant land. And eventually some of them, a remnant, came back, but even they came back to be under occupations of other kingdoms. And in Jesus' day, it was the Roman Empire. And in that day, everyone was looking at the Old Testament prophecies, which talked about a day that God would come back and reestablish the kingdom, and that it would fill all nations, and things would be right, all brokenness would be done away with, uh, all the oppressors would be overthrown, goodness and righteousness would abound. And they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone to come and take over. But, but then Jesus came. And Jesus was interesting. He was different. He seemed to be fulfilling a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, but he was a different kind of Messiah and king than they were looking for. Rather than taking a position of power and coercion and strength and just overthrowing and, and bringing military might he was humble. He washed feet. He hung out with the outcasts. He healed the hurt. He spent time with those that had been pushed out of society. And the religious ones, the gatekeepers, he challenged their self-righteousness and, and the laws that they, they made that were such a burden that prevented people from coming to God. He challenged them. He was unique. And people couldn't help but be compelled by him and interested in him, intrigued. But he was different than they expected. 
And so Jesus teaches about the unique and surprising ways of the kingdom that surprised all of Israel and really the nature of the kingdom. And that's why he gives these parables. The parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the soils, and today the parable of the treasure and of the pearl. These are pictures. Parables are different than allegories. Uh, they, not every part of a parable has some spiritual correlation. You don't want to over-interpret parables. Most of the time, they're stories that are intended to prove one point, to make one point. And the point we are looking at today is of the value of the kingdom and how the kingdom often gets overlooked. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. I'll start reading in verse 44, the first parable. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What Jesus probably has in mind here is of a hired help, of a blue-collar worker who works the fields, who works for farmers. He doesn't own any land of his own, and he's probably working some land that belongs to someone else as hired help. And you can imagine, he's out there one day, he's tilling the ground, he's sweating, he's working hard, and then all of a sudden, his... He, his, his um, plow hits something, and it doesn't move. It doesn't budge. And he thinks, oh, no, another rock. And he goes and he looks to see what it is. And it's not a rock. It's a wooden box. And he opens it up. And inside is more wealth and value than he's ever seen in his life. This was actually a common occurrence in that day. People didn't have strong safes that they could put their money in or banks that they could go bring their money to. Basically, they were vulnerable if they kept their money in their house. If someone was bigger and badder than them and who wanted their money, he could just come to their house, beat them up, and take the money. But, but if they dug a hole and hid it out, hid it out in the field somewhere, then people wouldn't be able to find it. It was a good system except when Uncle Harold died and didn't tell anybody where he buried the money. Because then they were all broke. They were digging holes out in the field and nobody could find it. And it was actually kind of a common occurrence for people to stumble upon treasure that was buried in a field. And according to Jewish law, Jewish law was basically finders keepers. If you found it, it was yours. But Roman law was a little bit ambiguous about who actually owned that treasure. So just in case this worker covers it up and he goes home and though he doesn't have many possessions, he sells all that he has to buy that field, that field with that incredible treasure, that valuable treasure in it. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that. Such an incredible treasure of more value and worth than anything you have or own or have ever seen, worth giving your life for to gain something so beautiful, so great. And if you lose your life in the process, consider it joy because what you're gaining is better. The second parable, the parable of the pearl. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who? on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
Now, pearl merchants in that day were actually wealthy. They were wealthier. Uh, unlike the, 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 the worker in the field, the pearl merchant was quite wealthy. Pearls were rare. They had to come from the Far East, and you needed a lot of money and a lot of education uh, to be able to understand what a good pearl looked like and to have the resources to purchase it. And you can imagine a pearl merchant looking through the pearls and seeing some that he liked, some that he didn't like, but then all of a sudden in the corner there was a pearl that was greater, more flawless than any he had seen before more valuable than everything that he owned. Even though he was wealthy and had many possessions, that one pearl was more precious than anything that he had. So he goes home. He liquidates all of his wealth and he brings it together so that he can purchase that one pearl of superb value. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom is like that. The kingdom is like that merchant who buys that pearl. And so as we look at these parables, it should become very clear that the message that's coming through is that the kingdom is of tremendous value. That's so precious and so valuable, it's worth losing everything for. That's the point of this. But as we... As we reflect on these parables, some questions should come to mind. Questions like, why is the kingdom so valuable? Tell me why it's so valuable that it's worth giving your whole life for. Another question would be, why do we often miss the kingdom? In this parable, you get the sense that there were other pearl merchants, that there were other workers in the field who missed it. They missed the treasure. They missed the pearl. Why? And another question is, how do we enter the kingdom? How do we make that kingdom ours and and get some of the goodness of that kingdom? So those are the three questions that I'm going to answer today. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on the first point, and then the second two points are going to come pretty quickly. But the first point is, why is the kingdom so valuable? You see, the value of the kingdom is found in the value of the king. If you want to know how valuable a kingdom is, how good a kingdom is. If you want to assess the kingdom, you need to look one place, and that is the king. Is this king valuable? What is this king about? What does this king stand for? What does this king do? And if you get the character of the king, you get the character of the kingdom. So I'm going to look at Jesus and just talk about who he is and what are the implications for what that means the kingdom of God is like. Has there ever been a life so beautiful, so controversial, so compelling than the life of Jesus? When we look in the face of Jesus, we are beholding the glory of God staring right back at us. Jesus is the one whose love and redemptive purposes compelled him to take on human flesh, human hands, human feet, a human mind, and walk among us and live among humanity and live out the perfect human life, unlike any other who's ever walked the earth. He went through the same pains, the same struggles as us, but he did not sin. His hands never struck anybody. His eyes never looked at someone 
with lust or with covetousness. He never thought ill thoughts towards someone. He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life on our behalf. But, but in his life, what did he do? He saw those who were, who were struggling and writhing in pain, and he healed them. He shared meals with the outcast. He challenged oppressive authorities with boldness. He gave dignity to the dehumanized. And his teaching, his teaching is an ocean of wisdom that people for centuries, and even today, we are still swimming in, and we could never fully explore the depths of the wisdom of the teaching of Jesus. It's so beautiful. He was filled with so much love that he descended to the lowest places, namely the cross, where he suffered and died on our behalf. But it was filled with so much power that he was risen and ascended to the right hand of God, where he is Lord and an advocate on our behalf for those of us who have faith in him. There is no one in all of history, among kings, among leaders, among artists and authors, who is as compelling as Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Napoleon Bonaparte, a man known for his empire building, the general, had something to say about this when he looked at the life of Jesus and when he read the Gospels. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires, but upon what, what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Now, Napoleon wasn't a humble man, but he's making a good point here. He says, Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, all of these were mere men, and I am a man. But none else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. You see, Jesus stands alone in history as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his kingdom is such an interesting kingdom because it didn't come by force and coercion, but it came through actually force and coercion that he took upon himself on the cross. His great love that has a kingdom that expands from the high places and the high towers of Wall Street to the lower places and the poorest of the poor. It exists in every home and every hospital. And every, all throughout the world, this kingdom is growing and expanding because of the great work of Christ. It is an incredible kingdom. And it is based on who Jesus is. If we look at who he is, we get a, a clue as to the nature of the kingdom. And when we look at his life, we can conclude that his kingdom is a kingdom of spiritual and social and physical flourishing. Take, for example, spiritual flourishing. We are people who are created to flourish spiritually. We need, we need to connect with the divine. We need to connect with God. And so all throughout history, and all throughout the world, you have people coming up with ways to somehow try to connect with God. And most of, the, most of the time, they are vague and ambiguous spiritualities that may give us some warm feelings inside, but really don't connect us to God. Sedona is one of my favorite places. It's one of my favorite places uh, to go visit. And I often find myself praying for Sedona. 
And my wife and I, we were in Sedona a few weeks ago. And when you see the beautiful red rocks and when you walk through the coolness of Oak Creek Canyon, it is hard to not conclude that there is a God and I need to be connected to him. But also, if you walk around Sedona, you see a lot of spiritual people who are trying all of these ways to connect to God, these spiritual tours, these vortexes, these crystals. And you see little spiritual centers all over the place. And if you talk to people there, you, I, my impression is that you hear a sense of disappointment, that people aren't really finding what they're looking for. But what Jesus does is he removes us from the world of vague spiritualities and through his life, death, and resurrection gives us actual access to God where we come to him with boldness. And you see in the life of Jesus a vibrant spirituality where everywhere he went was a holy place because he was always in communion with the Father. And through the work that he's done, what he has done is he has given us a new word in our spiritual experience that can only come through Christ. He has added a vocabulary word into our world of prayer, and it is the word Father. That we come to God through Christ, not as some ambiguous spiritual being, but as children coming to a loving Father with full access embraced by him. His kingdom is a kingdom where God is present and there is spiritual vibrancy. And that no matter where you go, whether you're in Sedona, in the beauty of the mountains, God is there with you. Or even when you are in a gas station in Camp Verde on your way to Sedona, God is still there because he is with us and he dwells within us through the Spirit. That's what the kingdom is. It's a kingdom of spiritual flourishing and connection with God. But it's also a kingdom of social flourishing. We were made to connect deeply with one another, to have friendships, friendships where we trust people, relationships, people that we can confide in, a deep connection with others. But it, it, is, it is so hard in this world because there's brokenness and there is sin. This is a world disrupted by insecurity and fear and power dynamics of gossip of slander, and even of violence within social relationships. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And his kingdom is a kingdom of social flourishing, where peace and hospitality and love enter in and even bring people together that you wouldn't otherwise see together. John Piper says, God is a peace-loving and peace-making God, the whole history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between rebel man and himself, and then between man and man. Therefore, God's children are that way too. They have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God did. God is a peacemaking God and his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And in a conflicted world, his kingdom is about reconciliation with each other, 
of hospitality, of loving one another. And we see this in the life of Jesus. You, you would expect someone with as much power as he has to go to the high places of power and only associate with those who are, who are of supreme um, importance and authority. But Jesus' kingdom is different. I mean, you, you know what this is like. Uh, I, I go to conferences sometimes, and uh, when you go to conferences or, or you're meeting with professional colleagues or meeting with classmates, oftentimes there's a conversation that you have with one another where you're sort of feeling each other out and how important the other person is. And then often, I don't know if you've been on the other end of this, uh, you get the sense that someone has concluded that you're not quite as important as they were looking for, so they start looking over your shoulder and looking for someone else to connect with. That's not the way of the kingdom, and that's not the way of Jesus. He took people who had leprosy and were cast out from the community, and he brought them back in the community and ate with them. And by breaking bread, he broke the social structures that casted some people out, and he brought them back in. The people who are in the high places of society and the low places of society are the same with Jesus because they are image bearers of God. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 says, But now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has, been, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This passage is referring to Jewish people and Gentiles in Jesus' day, or in Paul's day. And these people were ethnic, political, religious enemies in every way. But what happened was, when the gospel came into the world, it transformed people, and it took former enemies and made them family, made them brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the work that the gospel does in us. This is the nature of the kingdom. And I've seen former enemies, Palestinians and Israelis, become best friends who, although they formerly hated each other and had nothing in common, they had everything in common when Christ became their everything. I've seen roommates who have said horrible things to each other and have had deep wounds uh, towards one another reconcile and forgive as a part of this kingdom and stand with each other in their wedding. This is the reality of the kingdom. It breaks down normal social realities and establishes a new way of social life, a way of love, of forgiveness, of hospitality, where we break down the barriers between others by breaking bread with them. The people who are lonely and often cast out and can't do anything for you, those become treasured and valuable people that you will sit with and listen to and hear, esteemed people in the kingdom of God. This is the nature of the kingdom, of social restoration and healing and reconciliation. And finally, Jesus' kingdom is a physical kingdom. We often tend to think of Jesus as just this spiritual guy. He's like this little cherub who said a bunch of nice things and talked in a British accent, and then one day he floated off to heaven. But Jesus is physical, and his kingdom is a kingdom of physical flourishing. When Jesus walked this earth, he walked the earth in a physical body. 
And then he went to a physical cross and was physically crucified and then was physically resurrected and risen. He's the one that in his life, he, he saw the physically hurting and broken and put his hands on them and healed them. When he ran across the physically hungry after a long day of teaching, he turned bread and fish into uh, something that could feed the multitudes, physically feeding the 5,000. And when his disciples were caught out in sea and in a boat and they were about to die and they were in physical danger because of the storm, Jesus was the one who physically calmed the storm. And Jesus is the one who, in John 2, in the wedding in Cana, turned water into wine. He physically turned water into wine to keep the celebration and the party and the joy going. Jesus is not just a spiritual entity and his kingdom is not just spiritual, but it is physical. And if we are kingdom people, what the kingdom is like is is people who meet physical needs such as food for the hungry and water for the thirsty and shelter for the homeless, but also people who make beauty and make art who plant gardens and who throw block parties and provide experiences of physical flourishing that are a sign, a foretaste, a preview of the ultimate physical restoration that Jesus will one day bring about when he returns. That's what the kingdom is like. Physical and social and spiritual flourishing. I'll tell you a sign of the kingdom, a glimpse of the kingdom that I see. In the room... Just outside of this building is where we have our Redemption Kids building. And every Sunday morning, a few people wake up and they take their Sunday mornings to serve those with special needs in our community, children in particular. My daughter is one of them. My daughter's autistic, and she goes there. And and there are many families throughout throughout the valley who cannot come and gather with the church and worship on many Sundays because the children's ministry folks aren't equipped or ready to work with children of special needs. And there's a physical brokenness in the world that often keeps people outside of our community. But the reality is that my daughter and many others are as much a part of this community as anyone else. They are a part of our church And where I see the kingdom is with the children's ministry workers, the special needs workers, when they pour themselves out and give of their time so that the the special needs children can be included in the life of our body. That is a snapshot of the kingdom. So this kingdom, it's a kingdom of spiritual depth and connection with God of social restoration and reconciliation and of physical flourishing. It's not yet fully here. That will one day come when Jesus returns. But his kingdom is leaking into all places through his people. So that kingdom, pretty valuable, right? I mean, if you hear that, physical, social, spiritual flourishing, that's something that we should all want. But why do we miss the kingdom? Why do we not see the kingdom for what it is, but often see it for a jar full of dirt? Why do we overlook it? And in Matthew 13, it alludes to the fact that there were probably other 
pearl merchants who overlooked the pearl of great value and many other people who worked that field but did not see the treasure that was in that field. We often overlook it. And as humans, we have a tremendous propensity to take things of great value and to overlook them and look past them. I've shared this illustration before, but there's a man by the name of Joshua Bell. He's a world-renowned violinist, and he will pack out stadiums, and it will, people will pay hundreds and thousands of dollars just to hear him play. And as a social experiment, one day he went to a Washington, D.C. subway. He dressed down. He, he took a $3 million violin, and he played for 45 minutes six pieces of Bach in the middle of the subway. And of the, and it was some of the best music that people could hear. And of the 1,097 people who walked through as he was playing, only six of them stopped to listen and to pay attention. We have a tremendous ability to overlook the things that are truly beautiful and just miss them, to walk on by. And the same is true with the kingdom of God. And I think it's because we often take good things of this world and we make them ultimate things. We make them kingdoms that we pursue. And when we pursue other kingdoms, it obscures our view of the kingdom of God. For example, the kingdom of comfort, the kingdom of significance, the kingdom of security. Many of us are on a pursuit of comfort. We basically want to go on the best vacations. We want to have the most free time to ourselves, the best experiences, and our whole life is oriented around entertaining ourselves and being as comfort, comfortable as possible, as relaxed as possible. And comfort isn't wrong, but when that becomes the main pursuit of your life, it will obscure your vision of the true treasure that is the kingdom of God. Others do this with significance. We're trying to get the highest grades. We're trying to get the greatest promotion. We're trying, to, we're trying to do something that validates our existence on this earth. And we're working for significance. And, and good grades and promotions, those are good things. But when they become our ultimate thing and a kingdom that we pursue, it will obscure our vision of the true abundant life that is in the kingdom of God. And ultimately, what we're doing when we are making these things our kingdom, we are making ourselves the kings or the queens. Having the world to serve us and to serve our purposes and ultimately bowing the knee to ourselves. And when we bow the knee to ourselves, we don't bow the knee to Jesus and experience the abundant life of his kingdom. And for some of us, that's the pattern of our life. And I just want to encourage you to repent and to believe in Jesus, to throw off the old kingdom and to believe in this new kingdom, in this new king. And for others of us, we know Jesus, but we drift. And we often find ourselves chasing the other kingdoms, but not orienting ourselves around the kingdom of God. And to you, I say, turn your eyes back to Jesus. Repent, see him. But this leads us to the final question, and this will be pretty quick. I'm just going to close with this. The question of how do we enter the kingdom? See, the parables, both of these parables are commercial, transactional parables. 
they talk about purchases of buying. One man bought a a field that had treasure in it. The other one bought a pearl of great price. And so many of us might think, well, how do I buy the kingdom? And here's the thing, we can't. We don't have the currency. We don't have the moral righteousness to purchase anything from God, to give anything to God that he should owe anything to us. If this parable were written about us, here's what it would say. It would say that there was a man who found treasure in a field, and he sold everything he had so that he could buy that field. But then he went to go buy that field, and he didn't have enough money. But here's the thing. While we don't have the moral currency or the ability to to do anything for God that he would owe us the kingdom, we can't buy the kingdom, but we can receive it as a gift. A gift with someone else who purchases Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now what this passage is saying is that as people of the kingdom, yes, there are good works that we walk in, And yes, there might be some sacrifices where we sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, but none of those things is enough to buy the kingdom or to get it to where God owes us anything. We don't have the currency that it takes. We are not the people who buy the treasure in the field. We are not the merchant who buys the pearl, but Jesus is. He's the one who through his perfect righteousness and through his death was the one who gave all he had to buy the treasure of the kingdom, who gave all to get the pearl of great value. And what is the treasure? And what is the pearl? It's the kingdom that includes us. He's the one who not, ju- not only is the good news of the kingdom, but is the one who gives us access and purchases it on our behalf. So tonight, I want to encourage you to to not just live into the kingdom and do some things, but be grateful to the one who poured himself out to gain the kingdom on your behalf and to give you the treasure. And then let's take that gratitude and move out into the world to bless and love others physically, spiritually, socially, and every other way that we can think because Jesus is king. Let's pray.